I've got a message that I think is quite simple, really, and uh, not too cerebral. And it really looks at, as I've said there in the title, the heart of things. So we're going to be thinking about the heart. This is a message I just felt the Lord lay on my heart for this morning. Next week, uh, we're going to get into a series, Down and Out, the fact that Christ uh, was born, God come to earth, came down and encourages us to go out. But this is just kind of just stopping along the way, really. And I just feel, although I think it is quite a simple message, for some folks here, this is absolutely right at the centre of what God's doing in your life at this time. You see, God wants to win our hearts. God wants to win your heart. And I'll come to what the heart is in a minute. He doesn't do that by forcing himself on us. The Holy Spirit, someone has said, is a gentleman. He's certainly gentle. And he doesn't force his way in. And so this morning we're going to look at why is that important? Why is the heart important? And I'm picking up on some thoughts that I shared at the members meeting. Just going to unpack that a little bit. And I think this is right at the core of what God is doing among us as a church. He's certainly about this in my life. We've been thinking as a church and I've been reviewing my own calling here. And uh, so thinking about the future and the future uh, is bright. Future's orange. There you go. And uh, I think, you know, and I've said at the members meeting, truly, I genuinely believe this. I am really expecting what God is going to do in my life, in, with Ali and I, and in all our lives together. I just really believe, and I, I, I don't think that's hype, I genuinely believe God is about something. But be, before all the strategizing and the planning comes, where is our heart? Where's your heart? Individual, Al Cotting this morning, where's your heart? Somewhere here, is it? Is that... I'm not talking the biological heart. I'm talking about where are we? And where's our heart corporately? Who's our heart after? And I shared on Wednesday these verses. So Lord, I just pray as we come to your word and just share this kind of devotional message, really. I, I pray, Lord, that you might be pleased to own it as we lay our hearts bare before you. Would you be pleased to own your word? Let it find good soil and let it be fruitful among us. So this is from Ezra. The exiles, Israel, have, have, have come back from Babylon. Actually, uh, they had a job getting them back because they'd become cosy in Babylon. Israel had become cosy under this other regime. And they needed rousing and they needed waking up. But some of them came back. And it says this, when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates, began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices." 
It goes on. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Okay, did you see that there? And I, again, I said this Wednesday, but I'm going to unpack it this morning. What, what happens here is this. Israel builds first the altar. That's a depiction of Solomon's temple, which was a prior temple. What the exiles came back and built was the second temple. But on the right of the picture there is the altar. And so they rebuilt the altar. The altar was the place of sacrifice, the place of consecration. You had to come to the altar before you enter into God's, into, before they entered into God's presence in the Holy of Holies, which would have been contained in the big building there. And so they built the altar first, and it says there in verse 6, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. So the temple hadn't been built. The temple, which contains the altar, with all its forms, the the temple with all its forms and structures and religious ritual, hadn't been built. They built an altar first, and then they built the temple around it, with all its infrastructure. You see, the type of altar built will determine the shape and pattern of the temple. What's at the heart of things, at the core of things, at the core of our worship will determine the infrastructure we put around it. Well, so what? How does this apply to us? Well, I think the altar is an analogy for the heart. Okay, and that's what it what we're going to look at this morning. It's an analogy for the heart. You see, the altar is there at the core of the temple as the heart is there at the core of our being. The altar is the place of consecration and worship as the heart is the place for our consecration and our worship. The heart in scripture is the mind, will and emotion, sometimes synonymous with the soul. The scripture, scripture talks a lot about heart and soul and it's not always easy to distinguish quite what is meant in different contexts. So anyone who tells you otherwise, that's not, not true. Scripture sometimes uses these words kind of interchangeably sometimes, but certainly the heart depicts the mind, will and emotions. It's the place where you and I make those key choices and decisions. It's what makes you, you. Your heart, that, the mind, how we think, the will, how we decide, what we decide. And as this scripture says, the heart is key because above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Another version says, some of you will know, it's the wellspring of life. That place at the core of your being, your heart, where you respond to situations, shapes your life. In fact, Proverbs 27 puts it more clearly. As water reflects a face, so one's life, your whole life, reflects where your heart's at. It's not about your money. Money, money. It's not, that's not what shapes your life. It's not, it's not your job. It's not your family situation. It's not your educational background. It's not the pressure being put on you by others to persuade you. At this time, they're persuading us about, you know, the election and all of that. Okay, it's not about all of that. It's how we respond. And the place we respond is in our heart. It's there we make the choices. Brothers and sisters, you should find this incredibly liberating. 
because you have been given authority and autonomy by almighty God over your heart. You can make those choices for yourselves. And don't we know people and haven't we made stupid choices sometimes? But you had autonomy to do it. The Lord gave Adam and Eve autonomy to make really bad choices. But it's also incredibly liberating. Let me tell you this morning, whoever you are, however you feel, however strong you feel, you are a powerful person. You are a powerful person because you have the choice. No one one can make you choose otherwise. I am a bit of an election nerd, okay? I, I love elections. In fact, I'm really pleased that my day off is a Friday because I can stay up Thursday night, through the election, listen to the... Some people are shaking your head. I just pray for these people now, Lord. I come against them in Jesus' name. Okay, so I can watch the election. The results come in. Is anyone with me here? Three of us. Four. Five. He takes the day off work. I mean, that's stretching it. I'm not sure. I'm going to try and remember my point here. Okay, I love... I love all that, Uh, history teacher, politics and all of that. But I also love this. I love driving up, seriously, something in my spirit. I drive up to the polling station and you get out of your car and there's all these people turning around, turning up. And it's the nation exerting our will. We get to choose. We may not like our choices, we may not, but we choose. We choose. We put that cross. We choose. Well, God's given you that power over your life. We choose. No one chooses for us. Don't don't you have, brother, sister, listen, come against any victim mindset you have. I encourage you this morning, ask God to help you. Get. (laughs) That was funny in my head, what I've just laughed at, okay? But, okay, what went through my mind was this. I won't do it, but I could turn to you. You know, I could get you to now turn to the person next to you and say, am I a bit of a victim? Do I have a bit of a victim mentality? I won't get you to do that because that could be, okay. But maybe it's worth doing because here's the thing. Fundamentally, I understand, listen, I understand some of us go through rubbish in life. And life has been really harsh to some of us. But let me tell you this, you are still powerful. You are still powerful. You're not a victim. God did not make you a victim. You're not under the circumstances. You truly can be over the circumstances. I understand it's hard to do. I mean, I'm preaching to myself here. Don't get me wrong. But we have that power because we get to choose. Why? Because the life reflects the heart. And I'm in charge of my heart. I'm in charge of my mind and will. And I know my emotions are affected sometimes, but I'm not going to live out of my emotions. They don't, I'm not going to live out of my emotions. We live in a society that lives out of our emotions. I'm not going to be dictated to by emotions and how I feel. My emotions get in check, emotions. My emotions are going to get in check when I start to live God's way in my mind and will. And your emotions will then get in check. Yeah? Amen. Okay. So, just like the altar shapes what the temple temple infrastructure looks like, so our hearts determine what infrastructure we build around us. 
Our hearts determine what religious ritual or just ritual or just life patterns we build around us. The heart reflects, shapes this. So what kind of altar are we building? That's the question then. Who's worship there? What kind of altar? We'll come to these pictures in a minute. Either we're going to worship God there or we're going to worship other gods there. Actually, there's one particular God we all worship from time to time. If we're going to worship God, good things will flow out of the heart. The heart's the wellspring of life. Worship God there and good things will flow. If we worship other gods, listen, that's a dead end road. And uh, the altar, just like the altar will shape what the temple of our lives, sorry, then the heart, the altar will shape what the temple of our lives look like, what we put in place around us. And let me tell you, I have tried to build some dodgy old altars, and so have you, I'm sure. I've tried to build all of these altars that I'm going to kind of just mention this morning. Fundamentally, all too often we build an altar to self, that we're in charge, we're the one that should dictate. And that's not healthy. And out of that, we then start to build some other altars around that because we're in charge. So we build altars to the family. We've done this. I've done this. We've built an altar to our family. What does that look like? Well, when we start to obsess about our kids' education, because it all, it's all about how well they do at school, you see. That's all the messages that come to me. And it's all about that. And I know, I know, I've obsessed. Ali and I probably have have put too much stock in our children and their education and the results. And are they working hard enough? And hey, right, let's get our kids working hard and well behaved. But that does not shape them. That does not dictate their lives. It just doesn't. But we can get in that place where we compare our children's progress to how the other children are doing. Oh, such and such in that class got... That mark, and and our child only got half of those marks, there's something going wrong here. And we start to compare what other children have got and the opportunities other children. That wasn't fair of that teacher because they favoured that child over my child. I'm sure they did. And we run around like headless chickens to try and ensure our children have the best experiences. Well, in all of that, at the heart of our family life, are we building an altar to God? Do our children see that their parents put God first? I've said before, you see, you can fool a fool. You can con a con, but you cannot kid a kid. And if if the altar at the heart of your family life is not the Lord Jesus Christ, and there's not a devotion to him, your kids will see through it. Your kids will see through it. It, Christ can't be an addendum. Can't kind of be a sideline that we do on a Sunday. Got to be right at the heart of things. I find it really interesting, the number of families, parents, who want their children to kind of go to Christian clubs, non-Christian parents as well as Christian, want their children to go to Christian clubs. Why? Because they know that kind of the kids there will probably be be okay and they're going to hopefully be kept on the straight and narrow because we don't want our kids to do drugs and all of that sort of stuff. Yet the parents themselves don't invest in that. Well, kids will see through that. You can't expect your child to grow up with a Christian faith if Christ is not at the centre of our life and the life of this church. And we need to model that. There's no guarantees. There's no guarantees in this parenting business. But we want our children to go up as Christians. I think we have to be building an altar to the Lord. But we can build altars to the family. We can build altars to the career or material, climbing the ladder, 
Everything else goes by the by. We're seeking significance in what role we have at work. And it just wears us out. And are we in this? Have we got an altar at the core of our work life, if you like, where we're seeking God's will and doing it his way? And sometimes, folks, we've just got to say no. We've just got to say no to work situations and leave loose ends and all of that. And it's tough. It is tough. And ultimately, do you know what? Even there, you have a choice because you don't have to keep doing that job that is wrecking your family's life. You don't have to keep doing it. Who said you had to keep doing that? We take on financial um, you know, responsibilities and all of that. We, we choose all of that. We choose all of that. And sometimes maybe, maybe there may be one person here for all of that, all that pressure, that work and the financial is, is really crushing you. Well, you are still in charge. And we could talk through some wisdom if that'll help and advice and all the rest of it. I Googled for that last picture there on the right. I just kind of like it. I Googled cheesy Christians. Because, because we can build an altar to church or ministry or build false altars even in churches. Just because we're a church doesn't mean to say the altar here is Jesus. You see, it could be human strength. I'd like this church to run the way I'd like it to run, please. A little bit of control, okay? Just make sure nothing happens. And we know churches, don't we, that have been run by human egos and personalities with people exerting their strength to make things happen. Human desires at the center of things, security in what we know. We've always done it this way. We're not going to change that. We're not going to change that, are we? We can't change that. We have got to be, and I thought it was precious Wednesday at the members meeting. I think, I hope there was a genuine sense that as we... We did, it was a bit cheesy, we did hold hands, okay? It was a big group and we did hold hands. But what we were trying to do is this, say, Lord, we want you to be Lord of this church. That's what I want. Isn't that what you want? We've all got to make that choice individually. We all make that choice. You know, in Revelation 3.20, when it says about Jesus, he stands at the door and knocks. We use that in evangelism, meaning... For individuals, Jesus stands at the door of our individual heart and knocks and and all the rest of it. And I think that's a legitimate application. But Jesus, in that passage, in the context, is standing at the door of a church and knocking. You see, there are churches up and down this land that have shut Jesus out of his church. And sometimes they close as a result of that. Because Jesus says, I can't get in. I just can't get in. God, help us. Lord, Lord, keep us soft. Keep us listening, sensitive to your spirit. That this would be a church where your spirit is pleased with us, favours us, and knows he's welcome. I sometimes say, I love the thought of the spirit. Father God, you know, this being a place where he can kick back, put his slippers on, and just sit in a big comfy armchair, and he feels at home. Don't you want the Lord to just feel at home here? We don't want this to be a, a place, a house, where he comes and he just feels uncomfortable. He, just, he doesn't like what goes on here. Lord, keep us from that. Keep us from that. So we can build altars to all sorts of things. Well, what's a corrective to unhealthy altars? How do we begin to consecrate our hearts to God? I've always liked the story of Gideon, this guy taken from obscurity and the Lord uses him in amazing ways, but unusual ways. And the Lord calls Gideon here, and it says this. 
That same night, the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height, using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down. Off, using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So how do we, how do we begin to consecrate our hearts? Well, firstly, it may involve tearing down false altars. And is it, isn't it interesting here that what happens is the very materials that have been used to worship a false god are demolished and reconstructed in proper worship. There may be things in our lives that at the moment are leading us astray from the Lord. Could be resources, could be things we do, situations, could be relationships that God maybe wants to reconstruct for the use of worship to him. Maybe work, career, etc. How do we do that? Well, we repent of willful ways. We renounce goals. I'll come back to that. And what happens here is Gideon was instructed to build a proper kind of altar. To choose and pursue God's ways. And I think fundamentally at the heart of this, rebuilding a proper altar, is that, yes, repentance, re demolishing false altars. But how do we start to build a proper kind of altar? I think fundamentally it happens by day by day by day by day obedience. Obedience. It's, it's nothing more, nothing less than that. And I can't tell you what you need to be obedient in. But let me, let me challenge you with this perhaps. Do you know what the Lord's saying? And how do we find that out? What, what have I got to be obedient to? I think there are two things that can really help us in this. One is cultivating a vital prayer life. I'm not saying, you know, 30 minutes a day, intercession, weeping and wailing. I'm just saying, at least come to the Lord and just bring yourself before the Lord. Consecrate your heart. And then also, soak in his word. Let his word speak to you. I just know there's been times, even in the last two or three weeks, where I've woken up in the morning and I've just thought, not in a, I'm not really in that good a place. I'm struggling here. I'm really struggling here. And I promise you, I've come to the Lord, just sought him. I'm not a very good prayer. I'm not, I, in fact, I really I don't intercede much at all. I, I do a bit of meditation. There's some great apps out there, if you want some advice. Some great apps out there where you can just receive of the Lord. I'm, I'm, okay, I'm okay doing that because it's less work. Okay? And you just try and hear from God. And there are times I'll come in the morning and just put an app on and a meditation go on or just a bit of praying and then read the word. That can change you. You can hear something from God. I'm not saying anything dramatic, just something, hey, cheer up, it's going to be all right. Tight words, honestly, just a word like that. But if you know that's from God and he still loves you as a father, all of a sudden you leave that place. I've got a, a faded old turquoise, I think the color is. Bit the colour of your jumper, Martin, sofa in, my, in our little study. Okay, it's that colour. Little faded turquoise sofa. That's where I sit, have my quiet time. I God meets me there. God. God can meet you. Walking your dog. Driving to work. But give it, just make some effort to do it. And you can be transformed. I think the heart is consecrated. In that place, just day by day, coming before the Lord like that, easily, practically, hearing from him and 
just kind of living out of what he says. That's how we, I think, begin to build a proper kind of altar. It's in relationship with him. Okay, so what are the consequences for building this proper kind of altar? We've looked at Ezra's altar. We've looked at Gideon's. And we're going to look at Elijah's on Mount Carmel. You see, here on Mount Carmel, Elijah challenges all the state machinery of the prophets of Baal who have taken over Israel at that time. He challenges them to a duel there on Mount Carmel and says to the people of Israel, look, how long are you going to worship false gods? How long are you going to waver between two opinions? If God is God, worship him. If Baal is God, worship him. And there's this challenge. Just out of interest, just as an aside, there are some signs here in this passage that your altar may be faulty. What are the signs? Well, look at what it says here. These are the prophets of Baal trying to call down fire. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Not a sausage. Nothing's happening. What do we see here? Well, I think there's some indications that you might just, may just register with you and you may just want to go, yeah, maybe the altar of my heart needs a bit of attending to. What's going on here? Firstly, there's a lot of noise. Shout louder, shout louder, and they do. Have you just got noise? It's just noise. I can't, I can't hear, there's too much noise. Well, maybe there's things that need to be laid aside. Maybe you just need to ask the Holy Spirit, what's causing this noise? I can't think straight. There's just so much noise in my head. There's pain and there's harm. Is what we're doing, is the infrastructure we're building around us, is it causing pain and harm to others, is a relationship's not as harmonious as they could be. And, and we might be pointing the finger, but to what extent was, are we responsible? Do you notice there? They're frantic prophesying. I see this. I see, I see some lives around us, and, and mine has, and is, and has, certainly has been at times. Do we see some lives around us? Manic. Things are just manic. They're becoming frantic. What are you doing? And then finally, that's the um, children's worship workshop. Chris Burgess did warn me about this. <laughs> Mad drumming, okay? <laughs> Having just said all that, but anyway. <laughs> and then finally, do you feel alone? There's no response. There's, heaven's, heaven's just not answering. Well, maybe our altar needs attending to. And what happens is this. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. And they came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. Elijah begins to repair the altar and so can we. And it is in this repentance, turning back to God by degree, just asking the Holy Spirit, where am I off kilter. What do I need to do? What's the little thing I need to do? Like I say, I think God changes our hearts by degree. You notice key in this, the 12 stones. What's Elijah doing there? He's reminding them who they are. He's reminding them who they are. 
You see, they've been hanging out with the wrong crowd. The prophets of Baal have got into the royal palace. And Elijah says, 12 stones, one for each tribe. And he says, do you remember the Lord who said, your name shall be Israel? Brother, sister, you're a child of God. Like I've said, you're powerful. You owe it to yourself to rebuild the altar. What are the consequences of rebuilding this altar? What do we see? Well, verses 36 to 39. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Every one of us needs to be converted again today. We just need to just reorientate again. I think it's why God has his people gather week by week. Because we come into this place and after all that stuff that goes on out there, we come into this place and we just reorientate again. We're converted again by degree back to the Lord where we just say again this morning, we've done it here at the table, Lord, I'm yours. My heart's yours. It may not be dramatic, but it's just that coming again. And Elijah wanted that for Israel. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. What do we find here? Firstly, fire falls. If we rebuild our altar, the fire will fall. You will encounter the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will be pleased to favor you. And things will start to change in your situation. For one or two people here, I think this might be a word, for one or two people here, you have been wearing yourself out trying to change a situation. And you're doing it in your strength. Well, rebuild your altar. Reconsecrate. Please him. And the spirit will do it for you. Much easier. Much easier. Let God do it. And do think what happened on Carmel was a knockout blow. A fate, when the fire fell, it was a fatal knockout blow to the prophets of Baal. I just happened to catch the sports news this morning. And uh, there was a heavyweight boxing fight last night between a guy, Deontay Wilder, Wilder American, and uh, Luis Ortiz, a Cuban. And basically, this Luis Ortiz, the challenger, Wilder's the champion, the challenger, has beat Wilder, beat the champion for eight rounds in a row. Eight rounds, every round, Ortiz was winning. The eighth round comes, or ninth round, Wilder steps forward, he lands one punch. He just lands one punch. And Ortiz is knocked out, and Wilder's still champion. And I just wonder, for some of us, you're in situations, and I think this is the church in this land, potentially as well, it looks like we've lost every round. We're losing round by round. And maybe your situation, you're losing round by round. And you're thinking, I'm not going to win. How on earth am I going to win this fight? How am I going to win this battle? It just takes one punch from the Lord. It just takes one knockout blow. It just takes God to do something, just to step forward and swing a punch. And everything could change. That could happen in your situation. And it could happen for us as the church. We just need God to move. We just need God to move. Can a nation be changed? Yes. Yes, absolutely. So the fire will fall, knockout blows. There's vindication for Elijah. He prays, God, show them I'm your servant. If you're faithful and obedient, God will vindicate you. 
He'll show you have been walking according to his ways. Hearts will turn to God. Do you want, do you want your loved ones to turn to God around you? Well, rebuild the altar. Really interesting. I love this passage. Malachi 4, 5 and 6. The end of the Old Testament as we have it arranged. The spirit of Elijah. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. So this is the end. In my mind, whatever else it is, it is the end times. That God is going to spend the spirit of Elijah on the church. What's the spirit of Elijah? This was fulfilled in John the Baptist, but also it's into the end times as well, the last days. What's going to happen when the spirit comes on us like this, the spirit of Elijah? He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. We will see the prodigals come home. We'll see the prodigals come home when the spirit of Elijah comes on the church, because that's what the spirit does. Hearts will turn to God, and then finally, worship will break out. Do you notice everyone falls on their faces and crying out, the Lord, he is God. I read this on Wednesday. What if our meetings were like this? If all of us came having tended to our individual altar, that our hearts are consecrated, where the spirit is pleased to own us and presence himself. Well, then if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying or worshipping or preaching, they are convicted of sin and brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. And so they fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. I, I want a church like that. I want a church like that. Services, life groups, coffees in mosaic. Hallelujah. Whatever it is, like that. You see, let me, if I can, just say this, if I may. Being nice won't necessarily save people. It's good. Better we are nice and people think we're nice than they think we're horrible. That is good. But just being nice, just being friendly, just being warm, running lots of activities, doing stuff for the young people will not ultimately save people. People need to meet with God. They need a revelation of God. And they need to bow and fall down before him. And let's, have, let's pray for thorough conversions like that, where you just know people are thoroughly saved. Thoroughly saved. I think, I think we can be optimistic. The Lord may do that among us. Okay, finally then. What might be signs that we're repairing our altar, that God is about repairing our altar? What could be signs for us? Well, did you notice Elijah, it is very foolish how he comes, and he comes in weakness. One man against 400 prophets. One person against all the state machinery with the challenge about an altar and fire. Not, you know, let's, let's get the armies together and, and see who wins. And, and in that, pour water on the altar. Don't do that if you want fire. Foolishness and weakness. Brother, sister, Scripture endorses our foolishness and our weakness. Scripture endorses your foolishness and your weakness. 
1 Corinthians has a load of these. The message of the cross is foolishness. This is the foolishness of preaching. When we share the gospel verbally, it's foolishness. It's the foolishness of God that is wiser than human wisdom. And here is your call. Do you want to know your call in life? You, you, you may be thinking, what's my call in life? What am I to be about? Here's your call in life. You're to be a fool. Paul said, we are fools. Anyone here who can do that? All of you, put your hand up. Because we are all pretty foolish at times. We just make foolish choices, unhealthy cho choices, unwise choices. I can do that. I can do that. What God asks of me then is that my heart is after him. David, a man with a heart after God. I can do that. I can be foolish and have something of a heart for God. But weakness as well. Christ was crucified in weakness. We have a gospel that is about foolishness and is about a man crucified in weakness. That's not much to shout about, is it? That's not a very good message, really. Paul says this. He, he knows his weakness. And he prays this. Well, he prays for it to, his weakness, this thorn in the flesh to be taken away. And he says, but God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. I felt for a long time, or for a while anyway, that the phrase is that I think power is resting on weakness. Let me tell you, as, as a leadership in this church over recent months, we have felt weak. A wider leadership, there has been a lot of weakness about but I know some of you as well I know some of your situations and I know God is God is leading you into weakness well boast about it boast about it why because power will rest there it won't rest on your talents it won't rest on your hard work it won't rest on your effort it will rest on your weakness you'll be sorry to hear that over the last few months, I've, oh, sorry, the last couple of weeks, I've had a bit of a bad back. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it was my hoped for. And I just felt, I just said, Lord, is there anything in this? And if you like, the Lord reminded me, some of us, some of you live perpetually with weakness like that. You see, with a bad back, with a dodgy back, you just, you're incapacitated. You're worn out. You can't do what you want to do. You're debilitated. But some of us live with anxiety issues. Some of us live with depression, like ongoing stuff. I have other challenges. But some of us live with these kind of things. What does Paul say? Boast in them. Pray the Lord will heal you if it's sickness. Pray for that. Paul prayed for his thorn to be taken away. But then leave it with the Lord and receive his grace. And Erica prayed for me on Monday morning. When I was thinking this, she actually prayed for me, you know, that I might have, that we might have empathy with people in those situations. See, it's out of our weakness that we receive comfort. We comfort others. So maybe the Lord among us is bringing us to a place where we understand my heart needs to be consecrated. Is he about demolishing some altars are you experiencing God leading you through stuff that is leaving you not feeling stronger but weaker 
That may be a bit foolish. But it may just be that God's about helping you consecrate your heart to him. That you might know him, that we might know him together in a greater and greater measure.